membership director. He's paid for you and uh, your family faithfully, not just a, I will pray for you once in a while, but, but a faithful man who prays for us as a church, prays every Wednesday with a group of men for our church. Uh, Ricardo's a, he's just a godly man, and he's a gift to us as a church, and you've heard me say this a number of times. He's also a gift to me. Um, there's, there's a lot of things I don't know. I've known Ricardo for 18 years now, and when I say there's a lot of things I don't know, he's got me by a few years and a lot of wisdom, and God has gifted him to me to help me see beyond my age sometimes. Um, what I mean by that is, so I'm 45. I don't know what it's like to be 55. I don't know what it's like to think through different things or have kids in different seasons of life, but but he's been there, he's done that, and God's given him a measure of wisdom to think through things. And so Ricardo's one of those guys that um, I talk to regularly um, about a number of things going on personally in my own life, but also church. And then also he's a gift when it comes to um, all things political. Um, and so I'm not a very political guy, but I run my thoughts by Ricardo um, as he just thinks through things, not just from a worldly standpoint, but what I love about Ricardo is he's very theological, um, and he's very committed to looking at things through the lens of Scripture. And so he's not looking at things through the lens of CNN or Fox or whatever it is, that political station that you might think through. He's, he's a man who has built his life by the grace of God um, upon the Bible. And so his thoughts about life um, and really all of life, are, are really informed by what God has to say about these things. And so he's a, he's a gift to me, and this is, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say, may he also be a gift to you privately um, as you think through things. And so by that, I mean, if I have a question, I just pick it up and say, Ricardo, what in the world's going on here, and, and why? how should I be thinking about this? And, and he's just very helpful, very, very helpful to have a, um, a biblical, God-centered, Christ-centered worldview on life. And so we've asked him again to speak this morning on this pro-life or sanctity of life Sunday. And um, I, I shared those comments to you about him because I, I don't know if you're like me. And again, like I said, I'm not, I'm not that political. Um, but anytime you use the word pro-life, sometimes like your mind can just go, well, this is, this is about politics and we're a church. And what I'd say is it, it's not about politics at all. This, and you're going to, hear this from Ricardo, although he's very involved in that as he's the president of Georgia Right to Life and he's involved in the Constitutional Party and all that kind of stuff. Um, This is theological. And so whether you think about pro-life and pro-choice and the world we live in likes to pit those things against each other and it has a lot to say, a lot of negative things to say about those things, that's not really the question we want to be asking or thinking through. We, We want to think through in the sense, what does God actually say about life? Because what he says is truth, and what he says matters the most, and, and he commands us in Scripture, think about what's right, think about what's pure, to think about what's true, to allow his words to roll around in our minds, that we might hide them in our hearts, that we might not sin against him, that, that we might actually seek to honor him with our lives. And so, um, Ricardo believes that, Ricardo lives that, and um, if you were to look at his life and see everything that's fallen in his wake, is you just see a man and his wife as well, um, the people who've just built their life upon the gospel and who love God's word and seek to be as faithful 
as they possibly can by the grace of God to live out a life of just picking up their cross and following Jesus. And so please welcome with me Ricardo Davis. Try that one more time. Good morning, uh, brothers and sisters, and Pastor Aaron, thank you. Uh, Pastor Phil, thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in the year of our Lord 2024. It is my prayer this morning that we are encouraged and empowered by the Word and by the Holy Spirit as we hear not only how important life is from not just birth all the way, again, to natural death. Now, the Lord has had me in this arena for many years. Um, And as Aaron said, it is my desire to honor Him with my life as long as he has me here, and I'm sure my wife can testify, there have been some times when I've been wanting to throw in the towel uh, and question, is it really worth it? But when I see the work of God in saving life, I know without a shadow of a doubt it is important. So let me give you a little history behind why I'm here. What has God been doing in my life to get me to where I am? And what's motivated me in my efforts to protect preborn children from death by elective abortion? And again, when I say elective abortion, I'm talking about people deliberately making the choice as an affirmative choice to kill their preborn child. Now, back in the early 80s when I was a university student, I was in a relationship with a young woman who had recently broken up with her boyfriend, and she was pregnant with his child. She was planning her second elective abortion. Her first one had left her with some gynecological problems, so she rationalized that getting a second abortion would prevent any pregnancy complications. And quite frankly, she really didn't want motherhood to interfere with her career pursuits. Now, as she was talking with me about her previous abortion and her plans for the child in her womb, there was a darkness. that covered like a mental shroud. And I just couldn't shake it. It, it, To me, it was creepy. Like, what is she talking? This was the first time I'd even heard about what an abortion was. In hindsight, I realized that there were demonic forces at work that 
I was trying or I was listening to this, but there were forces at work to keep me from understanding and even more importantly, speaking to this young woman about the choice she was about to make to keep her from following through with her plans. Well, after that semester, we were in American history class together. The relationship soon ended, and I lost contact with her, and I never knew what happened. But I assume that she did abort her child. Now, later on, as a new believer, I got connected with Last Day's ministry uh, that was started by a musician by the name of Keith Green. Some of us who are older know about Keith um, and his wife, Melanie Green. And they had a series of gospel tracks. As I'm, you know, getting their materials, they had a couple of gospel tracks that dealt squarely on the issue of abortion, explaining not only what it was, but the impact it has, not only on the child, but on the people that are involved with it. The gospel message in those tracks called for, as the scripture says, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. It wasn't enough just to see it what it was, but to deal with the sin. And in doing so, it compelled me to be a witness on campus, to raise awareness of what elective abortion was and how we can end it. Forty years later, and it's as I was working on this, it's been 40 years. Forty years later, I've seen time and time again that nothing less than the gospel of the kingdom of God can not only attend, atone for the sin of the shedding of innocent blood, can bring forgiveness to those that participated in the horrible recipient. But it also, that gospel can remove the stain of blood guilt on our land. 63 million can sound like a statistic, but my brothers and sisters, it is a blight on our land, which brings me to the focus of today's message. And it is this, the law of God and the gospel of God are the necessary means to protect innocent human life and restore souls in bondage to sin. So now today, I want to focus on early intervention. I want to highlight what we can do, how we can learn from the scriptures to deal with the problem before it gets to the ending of a child's life. How God can use us and what we can learn from the word of God about rescuing the child and not just the child but also the parents of the child. So the first early intervention that we're going to talk about is uh, the account in the Gospel of John. And you know what? I left my Bible on the chair, but you know what? I'll just pull up my phone. <laughs> okay, here we go. No, I got them all bookmarked. Here we go. 
So I would think most everybody in the audience today is familiar with that meeting where Jesus was at this well in Samaria and a Samaritan woman came up to get some water. And we know the end of the story that that interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman not only changed her life, it changed the whole village that she was from. It changed the entire town. We live in a culture, however, where this woman's experience is common. In fact, our culture empowers women to think of her sexual and emotional fulfillment as the central fact of life. Movies, music, gaming, uh, as you see in commercials, uh, all promote and encourage this kind of thinking that it's all about me and all about my happiness and all about what I want. But the Word of God speaks to this deceitful attitude. And if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs 30. And in verse 20, there we go. This is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats, wipes her mouth, not her mic, <laughs> wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. Now, last week when Aaron was preaching uh, near the end of Ecclesiastes, he talked about this woman in verse 26 of Ecclesiastes 7. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken from her, uh, taken by her. Now, this woman understands that her behavior is sin. She seems to say enough that she's okay. And she has not sinned that she believes that it's enough to continue to satisfy what I want. So let's zoom in in John chapter 4 on the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. Once we get past the context of, well, you shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a Samaritan woman. Once we get past that, little social, you know, kind of um, awkwardness, the conversation starts getting engaging. As a matter of fact, the woman was captivated. She just kept going on and on. The conversation was moving to great spiritual heights. And I can just imagine if Oprah Winfrey was standing nearby, she would be leaning in. It's like, oh, wow. Wow. This is some heavy spirituality here. Tell me more, Jesus. Tell us more. <laughs> and then it appears that Jesus got off topic. You scroll down to verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, brothers and sisters, why did Jesus ask the question? Why in the midst of this conversation did he redirect? Given the context, you might think that Jesus is essentially establishing himself as the authoritative prophet. You know, the woman, she responded and acknowledged that what Jesus said about her life was true. She even granted that you must be a prophet. Today, however, you think about it. If Oprah was leaning in, she would have tapped out right there. Oh, man, come on. We were talking about good spirituality, and then you had to interrupt and start messing with the woman's life. Before, though, here's the thing. Before Jesus could land the discussion and bring the message back to true worship, Remember, later on he's going to be talking about, or they're going to be talking about where to worship and who to worship. Jesus had to deal with some of the idolatry of the day, in particular, again, the mountain of Samaria. If you look in the Old Testament, example, Amos 4, um, what this woman, the life she was living was a part of the culture. And a part of their worship. In our culture where the same type of spirituality is dominant. Saying something contrary. Can be costly. In fact. Segments of American Christianity. In, in, in light of the onslaught. Some of our brothers and sisters have accommodated or even embraced a spirituality that demotes what the Bible, from the beginning in Genesis, the complementary roles of men and women, it demotes and for, for that matter, it just ignores God's creation design and what marriage is. But Jesus understood that from the women's perspective, her relationship problems were connected to worship. This wasn't just a series of unfortunate um, marriages. It was connected to what she worshipped. Jesus had to speak to the fruit, her relationships with all these men, to get to the root that her understanding and what she was worshipped was misplaced. It was wrong. So we see as Jesus kind of brings this back. I'm going to scroll down here to verse uh, 29. The grace of God had its impact. God opened her heart to receive. And guess what? So the woman left her water pot. She was so captivated, she dropped what she came there for. 
and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Note how Jesus led the woman again to repentance. He didn't avoid, he didn't excuse her adulteries, nor treat her as the victim of all these men. Rather, he was honest with her. Brothers and sisters, in a godly way, he exposed her persistent infidelity and where it led. She had gotten to the point that she didn't even care about marriage. Again, Jesus said, the one whom you now have is not your husband. That was a path that she chose. And exposing that reality was used by the Holy Spirit to turn this dear woman to faith and repentance. Jesus is, and this is the point I want to land here. Jesus is plain speaking about her situation was not a stumbling block to the gospel. It wasn't. Naming her guilt was no obstruction to her repentance. Just the opposite. That was the path of freedom for her soul. So much so that you saw the immediate effect. Come see a man who's told me all the things that I've done. Is this not the Christ? Is it? Now, during the book sale last month, um, I got some good deals. And one of them was Rosaria Butterfield's Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And in that book, she not only acknowledges her kind of at-the-well experience and how she came to the Lord, but also the work of God in renewing her mind with his word. She repented, she, and in the book, early in the book, she goes through explaining how she repented of what, of allowing what the Apostle Paul talks about with regard to the philosophy according to the elemental spirits of this world and how that kind of philosophy, in her case, feminist studies, influenced even how she thought about things as a new believer, the Holy Spirit opened her eyes and helped her to understand why following Jesus at times will require godly confrontation in our increasingly hostile culture. Uh, if we can turn to Colossians, excuse me, not Colossians, Second Corinthians. Here we go. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And again, brothers and sisters, again, this is a spiritual battle. So Paul says in verse 3 of Second Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion 
raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what the work of the gospel does in us. And when that happens, we not only just have more information, we're not more, just more confident. It gives us a gospel-centered mercy and love for those who are trapped in their sins, the sins that God delivered us from. God gives us these weapons so that we can rescue. Today, our culture, uh, today in our culture, one result of our apostasy is that fornication and adultery have been destigmatized. Elective abortion is just a means of removing a detriment to our pleasure and the continued enjoyment of it. And it enables men and women, and I put men in there for a reason, it en enables men and women to engage in selfish pursuits without the responsibility of the fruit of coming together, raising a child. So, we see that this selfishness, again, getting back to the, what the woman was worshiping before she came to the Lord, that selfishness, that pursuit of illicit pleasure-seeking, these two things, my brothers and sisters, are the two main reasons why we have elective abortions. It's not because of the hard cases. It's not because of any trauma. I was raped. What we're talking about here is why it happens. Plain speaking regarding the law of God and our sins is the means of grace provided to convict hearts and to lead them to the source of forgiveness, cleansing, and a new life in the gospel. Such intervention, I contend, if we are willing to step into what God is calling us into, that is to means for us to save a child's life. Again, early intervention. So I have the first application point here. So let's think about early application preparedness. How are we going to prepare ourselves? If you started a conversation with a coworker, a fellow student, a friend or a family member, then what would prevent you from following in Jesus' footsteps, from engaging in godly confrontation? Take a minute. If you're taking notes or if you've got your smartphone, you know, tap a note. And let's write it down. And then ask the Lord to help you overcome that temptation to be silent. Now let's move on to our second early intervention. And we're going to move on in John's gospel to chapter 7 and 8. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Do that. There we go. All right, so, and again, in the first point, we were dealing with the woman of folly. Now, we're going to deal with another aspect of how 
innocent human life is being threatened, and it would be through the authorities, whether they be church authorities or whether they be civil authorities. Because, brothers and sisters, the problem that we're talking about in terms of, you know, fornication and promiscuity and all this stuff is so prevalent in our culture. It is part of the warp and woof of American culture. It raises necessarily political questions and demands for, nowadays, reproductive justice. Reproductive justice, they call it. And those in authority in the church or those in authority in the civil realm must grapple with these questions. And, ladies and gentlemen, I hope to show you the temptations that they have when dealing with this issue. So let's look to God's word to see how he provides wisdom and instruction on how to deal with the root of this particular problem. In John chapter 8, for example, we see one instance of how the authorities not only dealt with the sexual sin question, but I want to focus in on the legal aspects because this was in their jurisdiction. They had the authority to deal with the legal consequences of what's happening. I'm going to start in verse 3 of John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him. <laughs> that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they, began, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Now, Lord knows I've heard this particular passage exposited and preached on many times uh, in my Christian life. And most of the time that has focused on that very last point where Jesus landed it. Neither do I condemn you. The grace of God expressed toward this woman is great, my brothers and sisters. He forgave her sins right there on the spot. But let's take a moment to reframe what's happening through the perspective of her accusers, those who were in authority. Remember that they had not only just church authority, 
They weren't just bigwigs in the synagogue, but they had a measure of legal authority. And that's why they weren't just saying, hey, Jesus, this woman did something wrong. She ought to be charged. No, they were actually bringing a case against this woman, and they were charging up a capital crime in God's law, and they were asking Jesus to render a judgment. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, the chief priests and the Pharisees responded to the officers who had been sent out to arrest Jesus. And they said, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now, Jesus is preaching in the temple. He's preaching among the people. And they're asking the questions, well, we don't believe him. Has anybody, one of us, believed him? Let me continue on in John 7, 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Let that sink in, that mindset of how they saw the people that they represented. Now, regarding the woman that was accused of the crime of adultery, what did the law of the Lord actually say in these cases? Again, if you got your Bibles, let's turn to Leviticus 20, verse 10, where it says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, or the wife, or excuse me, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So when the woman who had been caught was brought to Jesus, brothers and sisters, they told him that she had been caught in the act, right? They said that there were witnesses. Then where was the man that was sinning with her? When Jesus stated Quote, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He wasn't pointing to the fact that we're all sinners, ladies and gentlemen. He was not, that was not his focus. He was pointing out a specific sin. That these men that were bringing this charge against this woman were so envious of Jesus, so willing to accuse him of wrongdoing, so willing to prove that they were more righteous than he was, so willing to, and I'm going to put this in here, so willing to protect their power and authority among the people, that they were willing to unjustly condemn a woman to death. Let that sink in, as Al Mohler would say. Let's think about that for a moment. That they were willing to go to that length. That they were going to have a, they were going to allow a woman to be killed. To protect themselves. To show that they were better. Jesus exposed them by appealing to the righteous, holy law of God. And using it lawfully. The woman could not be rightfully condemned to death absent of the man who was with her. 
And Jesus knew that the law commanded that in the execution of this particular capital crime, execution by stoning, that the witnesses of the crime were supposed to throw the first stone. Again, he's not saying, hey, no, Jesus is going back to the word of God and essentially pinning the tail on the donkey. Deuteronomy 17, you turn there for me. In verse 6, I'll start in verse 6. Uh, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who shall die or who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And then focusing in on what's going on with this woman. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, none of the adulterers, uh, excuse me, none of the adulteresses accusers dared to throw that first stone. Do you understand why now? They, if they knew what the word of God says, they were thinking the wheels were turning. Because if they did that, then they, their lives would be in jeopardy. They would be in danger of suffering the same punishment they were about to mete out to this woman. If I could get you to turn to Deuteronomy 19, uh, verse 18. Again, the law of God is perfect. And brothers and sisters, we, we have no need to be ashamed. Deuteronomy 19, verse, starting in verse 18. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is why they knew that when Jesus questioned them, they knew the consequences. So let's recall now our earlier point. Parents of a preborn child are tempted. Their particular temptation is to cling to their sin and to commit homicide against a preborn child to continue in their sin. Likewise, we see in this case that authorities are tempted to cling to their particular sins that I'm talking about right here and to allow homicide by frustrating the law of God. And in doing so, bringing a curse of blood guilt on the land. And the same sins that led these authorities to want to stone that woman caught in adultery are the same sins, my brothers and sisters, that would lead authorities to allow the killing of preborn children for no reason at all other than continuing my sin. What's worse, with Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery, she legitimately had sin. 
And she needed the forgiveness of God. In the case of the legalization of elective abortion, brothers and sisters, the child is innocent. Again, let's think about that. Now do you understand why the political problem of elective abortion remains 51 years later? Why church and civil authorities who claim to know God can't seem to honor the holy and just law of God they claim to serve and protect every preborn child? Why they try to fit their camel-sized explanations of why they support laws that will charge anyone of fetal homicide except the mother's child through the eye of their legal or their theological needles. My brothers and sisters, do you see why they get frustrated when they are pressed to do something to actually stop the killing of the children? Why they despise honest people who hear the, the law of God with a clear conscience and then hold them accountable to do their duty to protect every innocent human life. Just like with that woman, if those men who were accusing her, if they really knew the law of God, if they, excuse me, if they were willing to honor the law of God, because they knew it, they would not have drugged her before Jesus. They wouldn't have. Why can't we get innocent children protected? Why do they badmouth? And I've seen this, and I'm not talking about me necessarily, but I've seen pastors who have been willing to speak this inconvenient truth that would dare to assert that the preacher man doesn't acknowledge or recognize any human authority as higher than God the Father, <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, and his word. Why are they, why are these authorities frustrated? Why won't they do anything? Why do they get angry? These questions come up time and time Again, again, every year on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, every January as the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision that brought the bloodshed on this land all across the nation. We have to come back and we have to see that, yes, the men and women that are committing sin have to, they need the gospel. Because the gospel is the only thing that will prevent them. The gospel is the early intervention that will save the child's life. But my brothers and sisters, until authorities get serious with their sin and begin to see their misplaced priorities, their misplaced worship, and call our churches, our communities, our state, and our nation to come. And that they lead us 
to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, there will be no forgiveness. God has given them a position of authority to lead, and they must lead us. I pray. I pray to see the day. There is no true justice until this is done, until our authorities recognize the supreme authority of God and his word and act accordingly. There will be no sanctity of human life until that happens. So let's talk about, I know this is pretty heavy. And when I was reading through it, it's like, oh, Lord. But let's think about how we have a part. What is our application? How can we help authorities, whether they be authorities in the church, whether they be authorities in the civil government? How can we help? We are entering, as some of you all probably already noticed, we're in the middle of a a major election year. And if you are of voting age and you've registered to vote, you will soon be bombarded with messages asking for your vote of support. Vote for me! So here's another early intervention that I'm going to ask you to prepare for. Let's write down the question. If a candidate, let's say here in Georgia, if a candidate told you that I'm 100% pro-life, and they turn around and you talk to them, and they say, well, I support a national 15-week-old child ban of elective abortion. It'll be good for everybody. We can all agree on that. Then I'm going to ask you to do this. What questions would you ask of that authority who's wanting your support? Why? They can say you can kill, you you can protect the child when they're 15 weeks old in the womb. But when they're 14 weeks old in the womb, they can be killed with impunity. Think of what questions you can ask them to help them think about what they're actually saying. And I say this from experience because, you know, in the years I've worked in and around the Capitol talking with uh, elected officials, you know, here in this county and down at the state Capitol, again, just like my early experience, there's like a veil. And the only thing that's going to pierce that veil of darkness is the gospel of God. It is the word of God. So think, what can you ask them to help them see what they're actually saying? What answers, you know, what answers when they say, well, what, 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 Ricardo? It's what we can get past. Everyone can agree to 15 weeks. What questions would you ask that official? When he asks you, what do you think? Will you support me? What do you think about it? What questions would you ask to help him or her consider the impact of doing what they want you to do? 
Brothers, sisters, again, write them down. And I'm going to ask you to write them down and then before the Lord, bring them before you and then not just pray for opportunities. I'm going to ask you to make opportunities. If you get the opportunity to talk to somebody who's asking for your vote, you get to talk to somebody who's, let's say, a, a church official who's essentially talking about this issue, make, make the opportunity to ask the question. So in closing, my brothers and sisters, we're going to pray. We're going to gather in small groups. And my prayer would be that we all in this room would cry out to God. And that he would give us the privilege of being used by him as early intervention in the lives, again, family, co-workers, neighbors, that he would use us as intervention in the lives of politicians who, you know, nobody's asked him the question. But when you ask him the question, it will have an impact because it's the word of God and God sees to it that his word will not return without its effect. Brother Phil, thank you, my brother, for the opportunity. Let's take a few minutes to pray here together. And, um, you know, abortion is our slavery issue. Amen. In our generation. Abortion is our whole Holocaust issue in our generation. And we need to do a lot of thinking of what we think about Christians in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, or that area. And okay. German, German Christians, mm -hmm. who, how did they respond? And then say, okay, Lord, how are we going to respond? So let's just, again, we'll break into a few small, or small groups, five or eight people. And one thing, it, this is a hard one for us, right? We're tired of this. But the Lord isn't tired. And he calls us to persevere. So let's say, Lord, give us soft hearts to listen and learn. How do you want me to ask for opportunities? Mm -hmm. Courage to speak truth. There are two pro-life bills now we need to be praying for, of the Equal Protection Act and the Personhood Amendment in the House of Representatives in Georgia. Let's, let's humble ourselves and pray, Lord, would you help us to do what you're calling us to do? And, brother, thank you for sharing and your persistence in helping the rest of us. So gather in small groups, pray, just ask the Lord, work in your hearts, our hearts, and then I'll close this in just a couple of minutes, okay?